You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to Explorers. This is part four of Ferdinand Magellan and the Circumnavigation of the World. This will be the final chapter in the Grand Magellan Saga, so buckle up and enjoy. Last time, we left Magellan in the blood-soaked surf off the island of Mactan in the Philippines. He had been killed after he had got a bit too caught up in the local politics. And it was not just Magellan who was dead. In the aftermath of the battle that cost the Captain General his life, Enrique, Magellan's slave, had orchestrated a betrayal of his own. He had convinced the Cebuan king, Humaban, to turn on the Spanish. When all was said and done, roughly 30 members of the fleet would be dead. Unfortunately for the Armada de Maluca, many of the fleet's leadership were amongst those killed, including Captains Juan Serrano and Duarte Barbosa. With only about 115 men left in the fleet, the remaining officers elected to burn Concepcion. The ship was in bad shape, and there were not enough hands to effectively man all three vessels. João Lopez Carvalho, a veteran Portuguese pilot, was named the new captain general. The officers decided that the best course of action was really to keep to the mission, that is, find the Spice Islands. They knew they were in the region, but they also knew the Spice Islands were just a handful of distinct islands among thousands. They had a daunting task ahead of them, but their options were really limited. Unfortunately, the fleet had exited Cebu in a hurry, and thus had not been fully supplied. Fresh water would not be an issue, but food was a serious problem. There was no friendly port to stock up on provisions, and Carvalho and the other officers were anxious to avoid Magellan's mistake of getting involved with the locals. Thus, they avoided contact with the Filipinos except for when necessary, for fear that they would end up being eaten by the cannibals that each sailor thought was hiding behind every tree on every island. The fleet would sail from island to island searching for food and clues to the Malucas. The search for food got so desperate that Antonio Pigafetta, the Venetian scholar, reported that they considered abandoning the ships for fear of starvation. Then, after roughly eight weeks of sailing around the region, the fleet came to the prosperous island of Palawan, on June 21st, 1521. Here they were able to barter for desperately needed supplies. As they left Palawan, Carvalho ordered the capture of three balangay, small wooden boats used to navigate the region's waters, and seized the pilots. He hoped the pilots would point the fleet toward the Spice Islands. And the pilots did point them somewhere, but it wasn't the Moluccas. Instead, Trinidad and Victoria were led west, away from the Spice Islands, and toward the city of Brunei, an Arab stronghold on the northern coast of Borneo. The Armada would reach Brunei on July 8th. The city was a large one, and for the first time in almost two years, the Europeans probably felt like they had found civilization. Brunei was ruled by a king, Raja Siripada, a Muslim. Pigafetta reported that the man's home was like a fort, and that the walls were mounted with 62 cannon. This was not someone that they would be able to win over by firing a few salvos from the ships. Luckily, the Armada was greeted kindly by the local leaders. Brunei was not unfamiliar with Europeans, as the Portuguese had traded with the locals for many years. In fact, there is evidence that the local leaders thought the Spaniards were actually the Portuguese. But no matter, they traded with the fleet, offering them silk, rice wine, and foods of all kinds. Still, the fleet was wary about going ashore in Brunei. The recent betrayals had made them suspicious of everyone, and they feared the local leaders might plot against them. They waited in the harbor for six days before finally accepting an invitation to go ashore and meet the local king. 
The Armada's delegation included Espinosa, Pigafetta, and Juan Sebastian Elcano, the latter a Basque pilot. There were also several sailors from the fleet, as well as Carvalho's young son, the one he had discovered in Brazil and brought along as a servant. The group was taken by elephant to the king's home where they met Raja Sirapada. The Raja was happy to trade with the fleet. However, there was no one who could point the fleet in the direction of the Spice Islands, although there was evidence of cinnamon and cloves, so the Europeans likely suspected they were on the right track. When Pigafetta returned to the ships after two days on shore, he discovered that not all of his colleagues had come back. Elcano and Espinosa were missing, as were Carvalho's son and a pair of sailors. The fleet quickly came to suspect that Sirapata had taken them hostage. It is here that a rather dramatic and, honestly, somewhat confusing event takes place. The date was July 29th. Lookouts let out an alarm when they saw a vast number of proas, more than a hundred, heading toward the fleet. The proa is a multi-hull sailboat common to the region. They can vary in size, but the larger ones can be longer than a hundred feet and hold dozens of men. The fleet thought that they were under attack. Orders were given to weigh anchor and... As the proas neared, Victoria and Trinidad opened fire on the smaller vessels. It was at this time that the Europeans noticed several junks. The larger ocean-going ships common to the region had anchored near the fleet. Suspecting that they may be in league with the proas, the two ships of the Armada fell on the junks and seized one. All of this, it appears, was a big mistake. The attacking proas continued past the fleet and headed out to sea. It turns out they were going to fight an enemy of the king, not the Spanish. As for the junk that they seized, the owner was a relative of the ruler of the nearby island of Luzon. He claimed he had come to Brunei for repairs on his ship. The man then bribed Carvalho to release his vessel, offering the newly minted Captain General jewels in a diamond-encrusted dagger. Carvalho not only took the bribes, but he also seized 16 prisoners. Perhaps he felt he could bargain the prisoners with a local Raja for the release of his son, as well as Espinosa and Elcano. But there were three prisoners that he elected to keep for himself, three young women. Carvalho decided this was just the perfect time to start his own harem. And now we have the fleet really descending into a sort of slow-motion chaos at this point. Carvalho took bribes, enriching himself without concern for the rest of the fleet, and then he decided to start his own harem. None of these things would have been remotely possible had Magellan been around, and it's doubtful Magellan would have let unknown ships anchor so closely to his vessels. Discipline was crumbling, and the fleet was looking and acting more and more like a band of pirates by the day. The fleet was embarrassed for attacking the king's ships, and they apologized to his representatives. As for the men held by the Raja, Elcano and Espinosa would eventually be freed, but Carvalho's son, it was reported, had died. No one knows exactly how. Also, a pair of sailors, both Greeks, decided that Brunei was as good a place as any to jump ship, and they never came back to the Armada. The fleet would depart Brunei after 35 days. No doubt the time had helped rejuvenate the men. However, before they had barely exited Brunei's harbor, they encountered another major problem when Trinidad ran aground, slicing the hull. The fleet was forced to anchor at the island of Sinbamban to do repairs, Repairs that would take 42 days. In that time, the fleet had another mutiny of sorts. It was bloodless, and probably is not really a mutiny, but more of a boardroom coup. It seems everyone had lost faith in the leadership of Carvalho, 
So on September 21st, he was informed he was out of a job. Martin Mendez, the fleet's purser, was named Captain General. Espinosa would Captain the Trinidad, and Elcano would Captain Victoria. Now is a good time to talk about the man we've mentioned several times, but haven't really been introduced to, and that is Juan Sebastian Elcano. Elcano was a Basque pilot in the fleet. Basque country is in northern Spain, and the people are one of the oldest ethnic groups in Europe. They have their own language and culture, even to this day. Basques have a long history of being fiercely independent. Like many people of the era, Elcano's birth is obscure. The dates range from 1476 to 1487. That aside, he appears to have served in the military in some capacity and then at sea. To escape creditors, Elcano headed to Seville, where he attended the House of Trades School of Navigation, perhaps even being taught by the legendary Americo Vespucci. He earned his master pilot's license, and in 1519 he applied to be a pilot in the Armada de Maluca. After he was accepted, he helped recruit other bass sailors into the fleet. Elcano would take part in the Easter Mutiny, being one of the 40 men condemned to death. But otherwise, he really doesn't get mentioned much. He appears to have been a reasonably skilled navigator, but his participation in the mutiny meant that the powers that be, Magellan and his allies, probably never fully trusted him. But with so many deaths, there is a leadership vacuum in the fleet, and Elcano helped fill that vacuum. He had gradually become more and more important, and it is here that he is often identified as the person running the expedition. Perhaps not in name, but in fact. He was probably one of the more experienced and skilled navigators in the fleet, and after the disastrous leadership of Carvalho, it was his turn to step up into the breach. After repairs, the fleet took to sea again. At one point, the Armada came to the island of Bajau, where cinnamon grows. After close, cinnamon was probably the most valuable spice. The fleet might have loaded up what they could right there and then and headed home if they'd had someone to trade with. But no luck. Instead, they moved on, continuing their search for the Moluccas. In the coming months, the fleet would zigzag through the many islands of the region. Several times they attacked the smaller proas that plied the waters, taking supplies and even pilots to try and find a way to the Moluccas. Their situation was rather pathetic. They had practically become a band of pirates. They were attacking defenseless traders, killing anyone who resisted, seizing hostages, and turning women into sex slaves. But finally, after attacking and capturing yet another ship, the fleet found what they needed. A pair of pilots they seized from the ship said they knew the location of the Moluccas, and this time they were not led astray. On November 5th, 1521, the islands of Ternate, Tidor, Motir, and Machian came into view. After 26 months, the Armada had finally found the Spice Islands. The Spice Islands are not large. These four islands the Armada had sighted ran north to south about six miles across. A fifth island, Bakken, which is larger than the others, is south of these four. Ternate and Tidor are probably the most famous. They sport active volcanoes. The erupting ash covers the hillside. Combine that with the hot, humid air, and you have some of the best soil in the world. Soil that is perfect to grow clothes. At the time, no other place in the world would grow them. The unique climate and soil were perfect. On November 8th, the fleet dropped anchor at Tidor. The local ruler, he's often called a sultan or king, was a Muslim named Manzur, or more commonly Al-Manzur. The king, who was reportedly a great astrologer, came out to greet the armada with its arrival. 
It is here that the fleet discovered that the Portuguese had been coming to the Moluccas for the last decade. They also learned that many of the Moluccan kings did not like the Portuguese, who had arrived acting more like conquerors than customers. The kings wanted trading partners, not overlords. As a result, the Moluccans were eager to establish new trade bonds. The Spanish quickly struck up agreements with Tidor, and on November 10th, members of the fleet set foot on the Spice Islands for the first time. The Spanish and the Moluccans quickly got down to business. On November 12th, a trade house was established on the island to take in the cloves. Remember, they grow nowhere else in the world and are the most valuable of the spices. Almanzor turned out to be an excellent trading partner. He treated the fleet well, sending many gifts, as well as food and drink to the ships. The fleet responded in kind, including handing over many of the remaining prisoners they had seized in Brunei, including the three women who Carvalho had been using as his harem. When Almanzor could not provide as many cloves to the Spanish as they wanted, he headed off to Bakken to get more. Things were looking good for the Armada. The Spanish gathered the cloves in quintals, 100-pound bundles. They traded everything that they had brought, cloth, hatchets, knives, mirrors, glass cups, scissors, as well as anything they had stolen from the helpless ships they had seized at sea. So, just as the Armada was settling in on Tidor, the Spanish had an interesting visitor. Remember Francisco Sorreo from our first episode? He was Magellan's old friend from his days in India. It turns out that Sorreo had died less than a year before, but a man in his command, Pedro Alfonso de la Rosa, had become a sort of mercenary serving one of the Moluccan sultans. La Rosa arrived in Tidor on November 13th. La Rosa was the first European the fleet had seen in over two years. He was able to provide the fleet with insights into the local spice trade who was allied with who, where to get what, that sort of thing. But most importantly, he informed the Armada that there was a Portuguese fleet in the area, searching for any Spanish ships. The news likely sent a shockwave through the fleet, as Magellan had never told anyone about the Portuguese attempts to stop them two years earlier. The information caused the Spanish to accelerate their trading. Trinidad and Victoria were in no shape for a fight and everyone wanted to be clear of the Spice Islands before the Portuguese got word of their presence. La Rosa would join the Armada after he was offered a good position and suitable financial rewards. No doubt the officers felt La Rosa's knowledge of the region would be helpful. The Armada would spend November and December loading their ships with the valuable cloves as well as provisions needed for the long voyage home. On December 18, 1521, with great fanfare, the local kings came to Tidor, to see the Spanish fleet off. What took place next was almost comical. As soon as the two ships of the Armada weighed anchor, Trinidad began to take on water. Initial attempts to find and fix the issue were fruitless. The truth is, the fleet was in horrible shape. Over two years at sea had beaten up the vessels. They both badly needed an overhaul. Trinidad would need weeks or months to be made ready before she could put to sea again. The fleet's leadership commiserated over the issue for a couple of days before making a dramatic decision. Victoria and Trinidad would split up. Victoria would head west and return to Spain by rounding the southern tip of Africa. Trinidad would be refitted, then sell east to the Americas. Once Trinidad reached Panama, they would be able to send word to Spanish authorities for assistance. The decision to split up was probably a good one. Victoria was packed with clothes and ready to sail. The winds at that time of year were favorable heading west, so striking out for Africa was a logical choice. 
Also, with the Portuguese looking for the fleet, splitting up probably offered them a better chance of getting home. Victoria would be commanded by Elcano, the Basque navigator. And understanding the need for an experienced sailor to lead them, Carvalho would be named commander of Trinidad. Many of the men of the fleet refused to sail on Victoria. It was small and dilapidated, and many thought that the trip to the Americas would be easier than going west. There was no Portuguese fleets out looking for them if they went east, and they wouldn't have to go around the Cape of Good Hope, one of the deadliest places in the world for a ship. Thus, many felt waiting for Trinidad to be refitted was the best option. In addition to Carvalho as captain, Trinidad would have a man by the name of Hines de Mafra as pilot. While he is not particularly important to our story, he will get mentioned a few times later on, so I just wanted to introduce him now. Espinosa, the master at arms and sometimes captain, as well as La Rosa, the Portuguese renegade, joined Trinidad as well. Our friend Pigafetta decided to travel on Victoria. He did not like Elcano, but he saw the man had skills as a navigator and elected to throw in his lot with him. On December 21st, 1521, Victoria put to sea. They had 60 men on board and had added a pair of pilots to help them navigate the local waters. 10,000 miles of ocean lay ahead of them. Before we continue our journey with Victoria, let's follow the fate of Trinidad. The flagship of the Armada was in bad shape and would take more than three months to repair. But when they set sail on April 6, 1522, she would carry 50 tons of cloves. Before sailing, the Spanish set up a small trading post on Tidor, leaving four men to man it. Unfortunately for Trinidad, its commander, Carvalho, died on February 14th. The circumstances of his death are not known. While Carvalho was no Magellan, and he had not done well in his first stint as commander, he was at least an experienced navigator. But now the command of Trinidad fell to Espinosa, and as we've noted, Espinosa was a good soldier, but he was not a sailor. After a stop in the Mariana Islands, the fleet went northwest. The idea was that the ship would catch favorable winds that would take them to the Americas. But it was a poor choice. The winds never came as they anticipated, and bad weather, including monsoons, fell on them. With the winds against the fleet, progress was slow, and eventually scurvy set in. Trinidad made it roughly halfway between Japan and the Pacific Northwest before Espinosa, recognizing the futility of the task at hand, turned around. In October, Trinidad would limp into a harbor near the Spice Islands. It is here that Espinosa received word that a fleet of seven Portuguese ships had arrived in the Spice Islands under the command of Antonio de Brito. Espinosa could have tried to find safe haven, but in truth, Trinidad was in terrible shape, and the crew wasn't any better. The ship was barely seaworthy, and the crew was starving, and scurvy had thinned their ranks after five months at sea. So instead of making a run for it, Espinosa sent a message to the Portuguese, asking for assistance. It shows you how desperate the Spanish were. They knew that surrendering would likely mean imprisonment, but at this point, that was better than staying aboard Trinidad. After receiving the message, de Brito sent a ship to Trinidad's location. The Portuguese put the crew in irons, then sailed Trinidad to Ternate. There they stripped the once-proud flagship of anything of value, such as her sails and guns. The Portuguese took possession of all the fleet's records. This included the ship's logbook, Magellan's personal notes, and the diaries of the ship's astrologer, San Martin. Other than a few references to the material, the documents would, unfortunately, not survive. The Portuguese were in no mood to be merciful. 
They had been searching for Magellan for more than three years. They immediately executed La Rosa, who they considered a traitor for joining the Spanish. A few of the crew's more skilled members were added to the Portuguese fleet, but most of the men were put to use doing hard labor, including building a new fortress on Ternate. The Portuguese would use Trinidad's cannon for the fort's guns. As for Trinidad, she would be left to her own devices, and the ship would be torn to pieces during the next storm. It was an inglorious end for the Armada de Malucas flagship. As Trinidad was breaking into pieces and her crew placed in chains, Victoria was heading west. They would need to navigate through the region's maze of islands, then strike out across the Indian Ocean to the southern tip of Africa, and they would have to dodge the Portuguese, not to mention pirates. A few weeks after sailing, the small ship ran into problems when it was damaged in a storm. In early January 1522, Victoria anchored off Malua to do repairs and take on what supplies they could find. They would spend two weeks there, repairing Victoria, before setting sail again. Victoria snaked through the islands, gathering food and provisions whenever possible. They bartered as often as they threatened to get what they wanted. It was a desperate group of men, as we said, almost pirates. Several of the crew would desert the ship when they got the chance, as survival was now everyone's primary concern. Food would be the main issue for Victoria in the coming months, even more than the ship's deteriorating condition. Salt for preserving meat and fish wasn't as readily available, and the long-lasting hardtack, a staple when the fleet left Spain over two years ago, was long gone. Rice would now be the main food staple. Victoria moved on, sighting Timor, Java, and Sumatra, before finally putting the islands behind them in February and heading toward Africa. It was a long voyage across the Indian Ocean, and Victoria began to leak badly during the crossing. There was talk of heading to Madagascar and abandoning the vessel. Many thought the little ship would never make it around the Cape of Good Hope, and the dwindling food supply was concerning. But Elcano had repairs done as best as possible while at sea, and the ship continued on. Victoria finally sighted Africa in early May. Now they had around the Cape of Good Hope. The Cape of Good Hope is considered by many to be one of the most dangerous voyages in the world. The winds and the currents are strong and unpredictable. Rogue waves can swamp a ship. And the frequent sudden storms common to the Cape are a bane to sailors. The region has a storm called an anticyclone with winds over 100 miles per hour. In fact, Bartholomew Diaz, the first man to round the Cape, originally called it the Cape of Storms. I have read that 20% of the ships at the time sank when they tried to go around the Cape of Good Hope, so the odds were daunting. Elcano made a run at rounding the Cape numerous times, but Victoria was thrown back with each attempt. Then on May 19th, the Basque navigator took advantage of good weather and made the run once more, this time successfully. In the passage, the ship was badly battered, losing its fore topmast. After rounding the Cape, Victoria took shelter in a bay, allowing the crew to rest and repairs to be made on the ship. They also took on water and wood for the final leg of the voyage. Victoria next headed north along the African coast. Malnutrition and scurvy, again, were part of the everyday life for the crew. Plus, there was the worry of the Portuguese. On July 9th, Victoria sighted the Cape Verde Islands. It was civilization, but this was Portuguese territory. But Victoria's crew was in such a terrible state, Elcano decided that he had no choice but to risk a landing. Victoria put in at Santiago Island. Here they literally begged for food, hiding their true nature and their cargo. 
They said they were a trading ship from the Americas, and they pointed to their broken mast and said that they had fallen behind their fellow vessels. The ploy worked, and rice was delivered to the malnourished crew. Alcano then decided to try to acquire more needed food and supplies. He sent men ashore on July 14th, but when they didn't return, he suspected something was amiss. It's not known exactly what happened, but the Portuguese became suspicious of Victoria. Perhaps someone had accidentally, or purposely, exposed them. There were, after all, many Portuguese in the fleet. One report says that a man tried to sell some cloves in port, tipping off the Portuguese. When it became clear that the men weren't coming back, Victoria hastily departed the island, leaving anywhere from 13 to 22 men ashore. I've read both figures. It was July 15, 1522. It would take almost two months to reach Spain from the Cape Verde Islands. The diminished crew could barely manage the ship. Victoria was leaking badly and the pumps were working constantly. They had some food, but malnutrition and scurvy had taken a heavy toll on the crew's health. Finally, on September 5, 1522, Victoria arrived in San Lucar de Barramida, almost three years since departing Spain. There were 18 Europeans and four Indians on board. They had started as 60 the previous December. The crew included Albo, the pilot, Pigafetta, our Venetian scholar, and Elcano, the captain. Victoria had one final trip to make, and that was sailing up the Guadalquivir River to Seville. On September 10th, 1522, she completed her journey. The greatest voyage of discovery in the history of the world had come to an end. Upon debarking Victoria, Elcano led the survivors, barefoot and gaunt and clad in rags, through the streets of Seville to the shrine of Santa Maria de la Victoria to offer prayers to the Blessed Virgin. They then went to the shrine of Santa Maria de la Antigua in Seville's cathedral for more prayers, before heading off to the lives they had left behind three years before. The survivors of the Armada de Maluca were home, but like so many stories, there are many endings. When Victoria and the other ships were at sea, we had a nice linear path for our storytelling. Just follow the ships. But now the various threads of this amazing tale fray and head off in countless directions. So I'm going to try and look at the various people and institutions and try and give you a little post-game wrap-up of each. Here we go. In the aftermath of the return of Victoria, Elcano was summoned to the Spanish court to make a full account of the expedition directly to the king, as well as to face an inquiry regarding some of the more distasteful elements of the expedition, specifically mutiny. Elcano brought with him Francisco Albo, the pilot, and Hernando Bustamante, Victoria's barber. Picafetta was not invited, perhaps because Elcano knew he was such an avid supporter of Magellan, and that really didn't play into Elcano's explanation of events in some places. Elcano presented samples of the spices to King Charles. He also detailed out the many lands they had traveled to and the claims they had made for Spain. He showed Charles the documents the island kings had signed, proclaiming their loyalty. It seems to have gone well. As for the inquiry, there were questions about the mutiny, Magellan's death, there were rumors he had been killed by members of the fleet, as well as the financial aspects of the voyage. Elcano, for the most part, threw Magellan under the bus when needed. Magellan, he said, had abused the Spanish kings and basically forced the men to mutiny because he, Magellan, had explicitly defied King Charles's orders. As for Magellan's death, it had been his own fault. The fleet had only been following orders, and Magellan had been the one to enrage the natives. 
In the end, Elcano did some nice weaving and dodging to get a pass. And let's not forget, the guy is valuable. He had been to the Spice Islands, and that was a lottery ticket right there. No one, not the Spanish Crown or the House of Trade, wanted to dredge up the murky past when the future offered lots and lots of profits. Elcano and any other survivors were pardoned for their parts in the mutiny, and everyone seemed happy to look forward rather than backwards. While Elcano's account of the expedition was colored to suit him, a more accurate account of the expedition would quickly emerge, courtesy of Maximilian of Transylvania. Maximilian was a secretary of King Charles, and in the wake of Victoria's return, the man interviewed many of the survivors of the expedition. His report to Charles would become the official story of the expedition for many years. Maximilian's report was more objective, but it still offered only one view of the events of Magellan's expedition. A fuller picture would emerge in time when others would publish their own views of the events surrounding the Armada de Maluca. As to the financials of the journey, the House of Trade quickly took an assessment of the cargo and counted 524 quintals of cloves, all of excellent quality. While it would not quite cover the cost of the expedition, the mere existence of 26 tons of cloves had opened up all sorts of possibilities for future trade expeditions. The Spanish Crown and the House of Trade saw opportunity. The strait was now known, as were the distance and location of the Spice Islands. It just now had to be exploited. But before we go there, let's do a rundown of our cast of characters and see what happened to everyone. Let's start with the men abandoned in haste on the Cape Verde Islands. The Portuguese had taken them captive, and the Portuguese king, John III, wasn't in the mood to just hand them over right away. Whoa, did I just say King John? Yep. The previous December, King Manuel had died of unknown causes at age 51. So John, in, Manuel, out. But John was not happy with the news of Victoria reaching Spain. This threatened the Portuguese trade empire in the Far East. But in time, the survivors left on the Cape Verde Islands would be sent back to Spain. They would be released over the course of the next year, but probably not before the Portuguese had thoroughly interrogated them. The survivors included Martin Mendez, the fleet's accountant. With those guys accounted for, let's go to the Malucas. Unlike the men captured in the Cape Verde Islands, the crew of Trinidad was not so lucky. Most of them would fade away and die as prisoners far from home. Of the roughly 55 men who sailed from Tidor the previous April, only four would ever return to Europe. That included de Mafra, the pilot, and Espinosa, the master-at-arms. They wouldn't set foot in Spain until 1527, after spending five years in captivity. De Mafra's tale is somewhat tragic, as he returned to find that his wife had thought him dead, and she had remarried. She had also spent his entire fortune. He would return to sea as a pilot, and eventually end up back in the Philippines. Later in life, he would recount his life story to a scribe, and his tale survives to this day. Espinoza, who I have to admit I feel sorry for, pretty much got shafted. The House of Trade denied him his rightful shares of the expedition, saying that the five years he had spent in prison did not count as time in service to Spain. But things would eventually work out for the man. As a reward for his service, he was appointed to the position of inspector by King Charles in 1529. It was a good job, and the former master-at-arms would live out his days in Seville in relative comfort. Next, let's revisit San Antonio, the ship that had fled the strait two years previous. Alvaro de Mesquita, Magellan's cousin and the former captain of San Antonio, had been imprisoned more than a year ago due to the testimony of his former shipmates. After the return of Victoria, his version of the events leading up to San Antonio's flight back to Spain were confirmed, 
and he was freed. Mesquita would return to Portugal, angry and disillusioned at what had happened to him and his family. The mutineers on San Antonio had essentially been given a free pass the year before, and they would face no further repercussions for their actions. As for the survivors of the voyage around the world, they would receive various honors and rewards. Each man of Victoria was entitled a bonus based upon his position, and Charles even waived the royal duties on the spices the men got for themselves. Several men in the fleet, including Espinosa and Mendez, would receive individualized coats of arms commemorating the event. Others were rewarded with additional financial bonuses. The last two survivors we have to talk about are Pigafetta and Elcano. They would have vastly different fates. Pigafetta would remain Magellan's fiercest ally. He saw the honor and nobility in Magellan, and for me it's hard not to like this guy. The first thing he did after returning was to present his handwritten book of the journey to King Charles. Pigafetta then traveled through Europe, visiting with various monarchs, including the kings of Portugal and France. No doubt he recounted the details of the expedition and helped begin the restoration of Magellan's reputation throughout Europe. Pigafetta would eventually return to his home, Venice. There he would settle in and write the story of the Armada de Maluca. His early accounts were handwritten and filled with lavish illustrations, and they were sent to the monarchs and courts of Europe. No one really knows what happened to Pigafetta. One source has him dying in 1535 fighting the Turks, while another has him dying in Venice in 1534. No matter, his recordings of the first circumnavigation of the world would let his voice live on even 500 years later. And that leaves us with Juan Sebastian Elcano. Elcano would be richly rewarded for his service to Spain. In addition to the royal pardon for his role in the failed mutiny against Magellan, he would receive a knighthood and an annual pension. His coat of arms would be that of a castle, spices, two melee kings, a globe in the words, Thou first circled me. Rich and famous, Elcano would acquire two mistresses, and each would bear him a child. But Spain would come calling again, because remember, Elcano had knowledge. He had traveled around the world, and the Crown and the Board of Trade wanted to exploit that knowledge. In 1525, Elcano was named second-in-command on a new expedition to the Spice Islands. It should be noted that the Spice Islands were not in the Spanish area of influence according to the Treaty of Tordesillas, but that's not going to stop the Spanish Crown from trying to take advantage of this new trade route. The commander of the new expedition would be Francisco Garcia Joffrey de Loyaza. The expedition would include six ships and 450 men. The goal was to build a trading post and a fort in the Spice Islands to solidify Spanish trade interests. Unfortunately, only eight of those men would ever return to Europe. The fleet ran into constant problems, including storms, mutiny, hey, there's that again, and eventually scurvy. It seems the fleet didn't have any quince jelly on this next voyage. While in the Pacific Ocean, Loyaza would die on July 30th, 1526, leaving Elcano in command. But it would be a short-lived job. Elcano was suffering from scurvy and malnutrition as well, and he would die five days later, his body buried at sea. Only one ship in the expedition would reach the Spice Islands, but it would be captured by the Portuguese. And as noted, only eight of the crew would ever return to Spain, and then not for ten years. Elcano has a bit of mixed reputation in history. He's often portrayed as an opportunist who cleaned up after Magellan did all the hard stuff. And maybe that's true. But as a result, there is no strait named after Elcano, no ships, no islands, nothing. But I do think we need to give him credit. He took a dilapidated Victoria and sailed her 10,000 miles 
rounding the Cape of Good Hope and bringing her home to Spain. That is nothing to dismiss. Those that survived may very well have owed their lives to the man. Ultimately, there would be more expeditions to the Spice Islands, but each would be a failure. Perhaps they could have used a man like Magellan. Finally, Charles, in perpetual need of money, decided to cash in his dreams of a Spice Island trade empire. In 1529, he struck a deal with the Portuguese. With the Treaty of Saragossa, he gave up his claims to the Moluccas. In return, Spain would get the Philippines, as well as 300,000 ducats. A couple of final notes. Despite being barely seaworthy when she limped into port in September of 1522, the intrepid Victoria would sail on for many more years. She would be refitted and put back into service, plying the Atlantic for nearly 50 more years. She would disappear in 1570, all hands lost at sea. Today, a replica of Victoria can be found in Puerto San Julian. As we run through all these people, it's probably a good idea to take stock in the human cost of the voyage. 270 men had left Spain, and less than 100 had returned. There is an intense human cost to these voyages of discovery. The men and women involved rarely seem to come out on top. In the end, it's usually the kings and bankers are the ones who profit from the blood and the sweat of so many lives. And we really can't calculate the human cost with regard to the native peoples that were encountered on this expedition. Patagonia, Guam, the Philippines, dozens, maybe hundreds died. And Magellan's expedition would help set the stage for many more conflicts in the future. And finally, that leaves us with Ferdinand Magellan. His wife Beatriz would die in 1522. Their two children, Rodrigo and Carlos, also died at a young age. Magellan's reputation was pretty much trashed, both in Spain and in Portugal. Time would rehabilitate Magellan's image. Later writers would set the record straight with regard to his voyage. Antonio Pigafetta, Maximilian of Transylvania, and others would put into perspective the achievements of the man. In the aftermath of the expedition, the strait Magellan discovered would be dubbed several things. The Patagonian Strait, Victoria Strait, Strait of All Saints. But in 1536, a Flemish cartographer gave it a new name, the Strait of Magellan, a name that has stuck. Today, Magellan's name is associated with many exploration-related items. There's the Magellan spacecraft, the Magellan at Clouds, the Magellan Telescope. Even one of the earliest internet search engines was named after our bold Portuguese explorer. The list goes on and on. It is safe to say that his legacy has certainly endured. History, I think, has ultimately been fair to Magellan. We recognize his achievements, but also the man's faults. The narrative so many have spun on Magellan, myself included, is that he was a proud and resilient and courageous man who almost willed his men through the toughest of times. But he was also flawed, and those flaws led to his demise. In the end, though, he did some amazing things. I've said that Magellan's expedition was the greatest voyage of discovery in the history of the world. Columbus's voyage certainly rivals it for its boldness. But the length, the harrowing elements, and the accomplishments are really unmatched by any voyage of discovery in history. Magellan just didn't find the strait. He didn't just sail across the greatest body of water in the world. His expedition sailed around the world, a feat that wouldn't happen again until Sir Francis Drake accomplished it in 1580. It was an extraordinary, extraordinary achievement. I want to wrap up by saying a few things about the sources for this lengthy podcast. Antonio Pigafetta is really an amazing original source. I posted a link to part of his writings on explorerspodcast.com. The work is translated into English. It's not the entire book. 
I could never really find that online, and I recommend it if you're interested in such things. If you're looking for one really good biography of Magellan and his voyage, Lawrence Bergreen's Over the Edge of the World, Magellan's Terrifying Circumnavigation of the Globe, is without question your best option. It was really my go-to source during production of the podcast. Bergreen's work is incredibly well-researched and written. He is a true historian and storyteller, and I highly recommend it. There are many other books and articles about Magellan and his voyage. I slogged through quite a few items, both old and new and long and short. Virtually everything helped shape the podcast in some way, so thanks to all the sources. I have linked to some of the more interesting items on explorerspodcast.com. So that's it. We are done. I want to thank everyone for listening to this four-part series on Ferdinand Magellan and the circumnavigation of the world. It was an amazing journey, and I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.